2: Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or in the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage.
1: And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Our topic today has already been in the news countless times. During 2019,
2: let alone this week, YSL embracing a gender neutral look on the runway, the Loudoun County School Board voting Tuesday night to add gender identity to the list of classes of students and staff protected by the system's anti-discrimination policy, and Chevron donating $5 million to help men champion gender diversity.
1: And don't forget Nike's Dream Crazier commercial. Have you seen that yet? He's doing that to troll me. <laughs> What you don't think Chevron's the good guy here? All right. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) I think I think if Chevron donates five million for gender diversity, it solves all of the bad things they've done. It is total payment for global warming. Anyway, this uh, this episode of the fiction nonfiction podcast is about gender, as you might have guessed, or the social construct of gender, which is ostensibly the subject of that Nike ad.
2: But if you listen to what our guests have to say, I think you'll find they are pretty leery of gender being used as a way to advance the goals of corporations, whether it be Nike or Chevron, for God's sake, or the way that trans people, for instance, can be used as political props by the Trump Republicans or even the Democrats.
1: In the second half of the show, we'll be talking to T. Fleischman about their amazing new book, Time is is the thing a body moves through.
2: But joining us right now is C. Riley Son. He is a recipient of a pre-doctoral fellowship at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at Harvard, 2009, a Mellon postdoctoral fellowship at Pomona, 2010, and a National Endowment for the Humanities fellowship at the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture in 2015. He is the author of Nobody is Supposed to Know, Black Sexuality on the Down Low, and Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. On top of all that, he was chosen by BET as one of 10 trans people to watch.
3: Welcome to the show, Riley. Oh, thanks so much, Ziggy. It's really great to be in conversation with you and Lit. Uh
1: Thanks for being here. Uh, your first book explores the concept of what you term the down low among black men. Could you talk a little bit about that for our listeners who may not be familiar with the book and touch on how you reconsidered the idea of the glass closet? Sure. So,
3: you know, the concept of the down low, um, the book looks at, uh, in terms of its production, right at the turn of the 21st century, um, was a term that typically referred to black men, although uh, sometimes Latinx men, sometimes uh, Arab American men were were, uh, described in similar ways. But at least in news and popular culture, it seemed to be very specifically focused on black men's sexual behavior Um, and that and particularly black men who are having sex with men and women and didn't identify as gay, bisexual or queer. The notion of the down low as this kind of figure who is everywhere uh, but also illegible, unable to be located became the, in my view, the kind of scapegoat figure for thinking through new understanding or new implications of how HIV AIDS was being transmitted at the turn of the 21st century. Mm. So as we saw an understanding of black women as a new category of people who uh, were increasingly uh, contracting HIV, um, this figure uh, was developed and deployed deployed not only in news and popular culture, but also in terms of public health literature as a way to explain that. Now, there are a host of other ways that we could look at um, that uh, statistical uh, moment in terms of HIV transmission, Um, notably that the CDC um, shifted how they uh, did outreach around these kinds of questions, but that wasn't really ever uh, much discussed. Uh, And so part of what I wanted to think about is you know, why is the download such a believable uh, story to make sense of this moment in um, the kind of public health discourse of HIV and AIDS? Mm-hmm. And I turn to the notion of the glass closet, which first comes into academic parlance in uh, Eve Sedgwick's Epistemologies of a Closet, where she refers to it as a kind of site Uh, where people are already presumed to be gay, even if they're not declaring themselves as such. Often when thinking about racialization, I think about it in terms of hypervisibility. And so thinking through just the materiality of a glass closet, right, that that it's not only something that actually um, uh, doesn't quite conceal, but that it can also often be a kind of site for display. If we about the four walls of the glass closet as speculation, spectacle, confinement, uh, and uh, hypervisibility. That's so interesting and such a clear image as
2: well. In your second book, Black on Both Sides, considers the relationship between being black, trans, and queer. And, and you wrote that the book is, quote, is not a history per se so much as it is a set of political propositions, theories of history and writerly experiments i'm really curious to know what your research looked like and how one engages with transness
3: and particularly racialized trans subjects in an archive and archival work this project um, is uh, very much in conversation with and grateful for a path that has already uh, been Blazed by a figure like Cydia Hartman, a, a theorist, a thinker like Cydia Hartman, who, um, in her first book, Scenes of Subjection, describes her relationship to the archive as one of foraging and disfigurement. When we bring certain questions uh, to Uh, archives, uh, those those questions cannot be answered based on the kind of uh, political context in which archives are often produced. One thing to say also off the top is that, um, you know, there are a number of debates around when trans historiography can begin. Some people suggest that we don't think about transness, in the at least in the kind of contemporary sense, until after World War II and the site of the gender clinic. My interest, though, was in thinking about what makes transness conceivable as an idea, i.e. how is it that we can imagine that people can change their gender? And for me, that's a much longer history. Mm-hmm. Um, I also share with a number of other uh, trans uh, historians the idea of pushing back against an uh, understanding of transness as a new thing, um, I'm not necessarily saying that the figures in the in in the 19th century are trans in the ways that we might understand them. Um, rather, I'm looking. Uh, I, I, I'm looking at a set of materials, a diverse set of materials, from pickup notices to fugitive slave narratives to uh, Afro-modernist literary texts, and I'm asking a question about, um, the, you know, can we see? A mutability of gender? And can we also see where there is a, dis- a difference between the materiality and the symbolics of gender?
1: I'm always nervous about wandering into academic arguments that I have not done all of the reading on, and clearly you have read a lot more on this. This is your field. But it would seem to me like, you know, in, in favor of your argument here, that this is an idea that has existed for a long time, that if you look at world literature, myth, and folktale, the idea of the mutability of gender has been around for since the very beginning.
3: By starting the project in the 19th century, that's not to suggest that that is the start, but rather that it became a really useful way for me to think about the interplay of blackness and transness is as it relates to racialized gender in the United States. Ah,
1: right, right. Um, So your book considers how blackness accentuates or informs trans identity and vice versa as you were just talking about there, uh, in in your introduction, you quote Claire Colbrook's idea that the term trans, quote, expresses the primordial being from which difference is formed. And then you connect this to blackness. Could you talk about how you came to that
3: connection? Sure. So, you know, my interest in in Claire Colbrook's notion of trans has a lot to do with um, what she, uh, is describing in this essay as transitivity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for Colebrook, she's interested in, uh, thinking about trans as a way of thinking across the register of species, at least at the very, at the very least. Right. So thinking across, uh, human animal, uh, um, vegetal mineral distinction. Um, and so we might say like, a, a, a spatial metaphor might be something like Pangea, or perhaps even a better uh, way of, of thinking about what is at stake for Colebrook there is a kind of notion of the plenum, right? All matter. Um, and and I, I find that to be useful in terms of thinking about transness as not only marking um, a kind of transgender experience. Right. Uh, but I also wanted to think trans. Sensitivity, um, in terms of its uh, grammatical function. Mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, someone who is uh, deeply uh, in conversation with and thinking uh, with um, Hortense Spillers, a uh, black feminist literary critic and theorist, um, who in her essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book, uh, is talking about how The kind of consequence of the transatlantic slave trade for black people uh, is or was ungendering. Um, And so, if we think about the transitive use of a verb in grammar, it refers to a verb that requires a direct object to fix its meaning. So, while on one hand, you know, trans can often mean, you know, uh, it Trans often invokes a form of movement, you know, from one thing to from one place to the next, uh, you know, passing into a different kind of condition. But I also was very invested in thinking about when we look at trans, what needs to be put in place in order for us to understand that something trans is happening. Um, And that's how I was really thinking about blackness and transness as working together, namely that. Um, the, the, the kind of ungendering of blackness in uh, the antebellum period of the U.S. gives us a sense of this um, lack of anatomical and symbolic coherence. It also gives us a sense of the mutability of gender. And I, there's a, you know, uh, chapter two of the book um, really explores how people are changing their gender as part of their fugitive passages out of slavery. Um, yeah, maybe also, t- tell us more about oh, it. Could ahead. you s- just stop
1: for a moment and and let us in, maybe ex- expand on that idea of how that ungendering happened? Because you do write quite a bit about that in the book. I think that's really interesting.
3: Yeah. So in my, my approach to um, um, uh, concretizing um, Spiller's uh, theory of ungendering happens across the first part of the book. Um, in one sense – uh, Spillers talks about how the ungendering of blackness creates a living laboratory. And in that uh, sense, I look at the um, archives of J. Marion Sims, who uh, was lionized as the uh, father of American gynecology, and think about the three and a half years of experiments conducted on uh Black women towards a cure for vesicovaginal fistula. Um, And in looking at that archive, part of what uh, I was interested in um, highlighting is that, you know, the model of uh, sex as being divided according to male and female is deeply related to perhaps even patterned after a model of a completely bifurcated race system of white and black. And so I, I start there as a way of thinking um, through sex as be, uh, the kind of notion of biological sex as being um, constructed mm. um, and constructed in relation to race, race at a moment in which whiteness and blackness not only was supposed to be art racial difference, but there were some really uh, heated debates about whether the racial difference also uh, indicated special difference. Um, the second part of that, uh, the second chapter in that first part of the book looks at ungendering as a way of resisting um, a kind of dominant way of reading fugitive slave narratives according to passing. And my, you know pet peeve with that, with the reading of, uh, people changing their gender and calling it passing is that it, it, it holds on to a kind of essential notion of gender. Yeah. Rather, I was interested in like saying, what, what does it mean if we read this as, um, you know, thinking about, a ungendering as not only something that can be put to work for, uh, in you know, Know, the founding of a field or, the, or that is experienced in terms of a kind of total brutalizing um, institutional knowledge and, and, and racial capitalism, but also what if pe- people are making use of their ungendered status in order to um, move out of spaces of captivity? And so even as I'm looking at kind of fugitive slave narratives like Harriet Jacobs, incidents in the life of a slave girl, or, uh William and Ellen Kraft and uh, their uh, narrative, uh, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom, um, that's also something that echoes throughout the book, that I'm interested in thinking about how people, uh, particularly uh, black folks, make use of their gender as a way to resist control. And that's something that also comes up even after the emergence of the clinic, um, when a number of of black folks based on, um, you know, uh, often based on class considerations and not having the money to be able to transition in the way that a figure like Christine Jorgensen can, um, are making use of their gender uh, in order to uh, escape uh, the the police or in order to um, uh, work with, Uh, to to find employment Um, and and so looking at the archives of the black press as a way of also um, being very deliberate to say that even when we imagine that trans is a medicalized um, uh, form of identity, that there are folks who for many reasons are barred from that medicalization and are living trans lives. This is
2: reminding me i don't know did you did you happen to see a thread on twitter um gosh was it earlier today or yesterday nicole hannah jones was had this fascinating thread about talking about um blackness as class and i'm wishing that i could sort of put these two conversations next to each other because i'll i'll put that in the show notes for our listeners but it was just really um it's really interesting and and to think about the ways in which you're What you're describing is this process of um, what you describe in the book is this process of ungendering. Um, Hughes describing is I don't know almost a process of like blackness becoming a class of being, which was really Mm -hmm. just thought provoking for me. And I wonder before we go too much farther if we could we could have you read from the book so that our our listeners can hear um, some of what you're talking about in in the words of the book.
3: Absolutely, and and thanks for that. I will have to go find that on Twitter. That sounds fascinating. So I'll start with. I think a lot about Blake Brockington. I think a lot about Blake Brockington, a black trans man who garnered national attention in 2014 as the first out trans homecoming king in North Carolina. He was nominated by his classmates at East Mecklenburg High School in Charlotte, but he also earned his title by raising money, $2,555.55 out of the total $3,203.22 collected for the school-selected charity Mothering Across Continents, a Charlotte-based nonprofit that focuses on youth development in South Sudan, Haiti, South Africa, and Mexico. Before moving to Charlotte to live with his father, Brockington grew up in the coastal city of Charleston, South Carolina. I grew up in inland South Carolina near the state capital, Columbia. By the time he was made king, Brockington had already moved in with a foster family Life with his father and stepmother became untenable after he came out as trans in the 10th grade. In an interview with the Charlotte Observer, he explained, quote, my family feels like this is a decision I made. They think you're already black, but why would you want to draw more attention to yourself? But it's not a decision. It's who I am. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Suffice to say that I understand its family's reaction. The sensibilities expressed by Brockington's family, particularly in the use of already black, underscore how blackness and transness are tethered in the contemporary landscape in terms of visibility, in which the form of, quote, attention directed at black and trans people is frequently articulated through policies such as House Bill 2, which passed on the one year anniversary of Brockington's death on March 23rd, 2016. Sometimes referred to as the transgender bathroom bill HB2 prohibits city municipalities from defining LGBT people as a protected class while simultaneously eliminating any state modes of redress for workplace discrimination based on the narrowly prescribed rubrics of difference, race, religion, color, national origin, age, handicap, or biological sex it purportedly protects. Media focus on transgender people's ability to use a bathroom of their choice obscures a more urgent conversation about what modes of dispossession are possible under the ruse of state inclusion. Brockington, however, described the attention he received after his homecoming win as the hardest part of his trans journey. Quote, really hateful things were said on the internet. It was hard. I saw how narrow-minded the world really is. He elaborated in the short documentary, Brockington, I've had people call me a tranny, a dyke, I've had people call me he, she, it thing, you know. They called me homecoming thing and called me a pervert and an abomination. Different things. I've gotten a lot of different things. The list of different things echoes what Hortense Spillers has described as a meeting ground of investments and privations in the national treasury of rhetorical wealth in which the preponderance of terminology is a testament to the need of the nation state and national culture to invent such a thing into being. This list also expresses the imbrications of anti-Black and anti-trans animus as each entry materializes a history of racialized gender denigration. In an interview Brockington related, I'm still a person and trans people are still people. Our bodies just don't match up what's in our heads. We need support, not people looking down at us or degrading us or overlooking us. We are still human.
2: In the book, you describe Blackness as, quote, condition of possibility for the modern world. What do you mean by that and how does that
3: relate to transness? So um, when I'm thinking about it as a condition of possibility, I'm really um, reflecting on the work of Denise Ferreira de Silva um, and her book published with Minnesota Press in 2011 Toward a Global Idea of Race, where she, pick, she carefully looks at how um, what she terms the analytics of raciality um, produces modern representation. Um, that is, that like race is not just a marker of difference, right? But that it actually is a productive force for thinking about thought. <laughs> Curious way of phrasing it, but yes, for making thought possible, which is one way of talking about the condition of possibility. Um, so, you know, even in the ways that we that we give language to uh, modernity, i.e., the ways that enlightenment uh, already uh, traffics in language of lightness and darkness, I'm interested in thinking about how blackness is made to serve on the other end of a scale uh, to propel a new order of human knowledge, uh, one in which it's no longer related to man's relationship to God, but man's relationship to reason. Um, and if we're talking then about this kind of uh, modernity as a moment of great shift, I mean, that's also something that we can mark with an analytic or, and a descriptive like trans. Uh, how do we move uh, in from one sense of man to another? Um, and so that, that is, that is uh, one way in which I'm thinking blackness and transness as imbricated in thinking um, uh, through uh, our, our modern world. Um, so how
1: do you feel about the recent increase in the visibility of trans issues and trans people? Uh, we opened the show by listing multinational corporations like Yves Saint Laurent and Nike and Chevron who've recently aligned their corporate images with trans issues or advertisements that challenge gender norms. If you want to talk about Nike, they've also championed Colin Kaepernick. Is there, is there something positive in this visibility or is it an example of what you call racial
3: capitalism? So I'll start with the pessimistic punchline which is there is no outside of racial capitalism Um, (laughs) that's kind of what I think so I'm glad to hear that (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know so, But I think that, you know, I, honestly, there's a book that recently came out by Julian uh, Peterson uh, called Histories of the Transgender Child, where I think they put it quite succinctly, which is to say that the visibility of uh, trans folks um, has been um, incredibly misleading, um, that trans visibility, especially in relation to selling products, um, is, is often made to signify something like the nowness and the newness, um, of, uh, trans existence. Um, and yet there is a really disturbing, um, uh, counter, uh, visuality that happens when thinking about trans folks as well. Namely that the other ways that trans people circulate is often posthumously, um, that we come to understand them, um, after their death. Right. Uh, and, and, and often through uh, their being, pre, uh, you know, killed, uh, and so through their premature death, um, and so uh, I mean, this is why I would. That's this is why I see this as as Im- as embedded in racial capitalism. I think it's one of the the ways to think about these two forms of visibility happening simultaneously.
1: The political writer Tom. Thomas Frank has been on the show and he wrote one of his very first books, his dissertation was a book called the conquest of cool. And it described the way that Madison Avenue was able to incorporate ideas from the sixties and immediately how quickly they were able to incorporate them into corporate culture and corp- corporate, advertising and how ravenous the sort of monster of, of advertising is for anything that's new. Right. And that's what I feel like I see happening when G- Chevron or Nike is running these advertisements. Um, uh, I, I also wondered if you could, like, what is your definition of racial capitalism? I have my own, but I'd be curious <laughs> to know how you would define it.
3: That is not a small question. I know. Um, <laughs> we got, we got a little time, you know, 30 seconds okay, or so. Right. No, <laughs> fair, 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 fair. Uh, no, I mean, so, like, so, certainly, right. I'd it, it be remiss without naming Cedric Robinson, black Marxism. Um, one of the ways I think about racial capitalism is that I think about, uh, the kind of uh, race as a productive force that allows cap for capitalist expansion. And so I think race capitalism, racial capitalism marks the way that um, uh, capitalism is able to move by way of uh, figuring um, uh, racialized subjects. And certainly we could think not only with these kinds of examples of uh, Chevron or Nike, um, of the kind of uh, dream crazier series that's going on as well, yeah. but also uh, that there are these um, historical examples, which may which are, are far less um, glossy or fun, but something that you know a, a person like Lisa Lowe attends to in an intimacy of four continents in terms of thinking about how colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade uh, produce something like the free market.
2: Right. It's really helpful to hear these ideas that I have articulated in such sharp ways. And I was reading this op-ed in the New York Times by Derek Purnell sort of talking about um, President Obama. And it was quoting him saying in a recent town hall meeting, um, if you are very confident about your sexuality, you don't have to have eight women around you twerking. And then Purnell goes on to add, quote, I cannot imagine being a, quote, boy in that room who feels like a girl or who is a girl or dreams of eight men twerking around him or wants to twerk or is curious about both boys and girls. And and the headline of this op-ed was something like um, Barack Obama scolding black boys. And I just, um, I really appreciated the way that this piece brought in gender variance and and gender nonconformity and addressed that. Um, It was something that someone in that room might have been feeling. I wonder if you could talk about that comment in the context of your book and the way you think about gender roles in the black
3: community. Yeah, no, I also really appreciate Pranell's analysis here. And I um, went and and in looking at the uh, op-ed that she uh, wrote, I was struck by the fact that this is, um, you know, a kind of rhetorical maneuver that Obama's making. So if you're confident about your sexuality, then you don't need eight women around you twerking. But he earlier, at least according to the uh, op-ed, Says something like, if you're confident about your finances, you don't need to wear a eight pound gold chain. And so I was I was very curious about the the way that confidence um, was being figured uh, in his uh, speech. Now, in terms of uh, Purnell's reading, I think the way that she attends to this notion of confidence and sexuality is both uh, help in um, thinking about the, the fact that transsexuality and uh, queer sexualities don't need to be necessarily distinguished. That in fact, in, in Obama's statement, um, that queer and trans folks um, are, find less room for maneuver, even in his critique. Um, so there's a kind of heteronormativity to the critique that I think she really underscores there. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, as it relates to her opening up uh, a kind of consideration about like, what would it mean for queer people to think about these things as liberatory or for trans people to exist um, within a frame in which there seems like there's um, not really any space in the kind of My Brother's Keeper line of thinking. Um, It really caused me to think a lot about something that is, is prevalent in the book, which is Um, to really think about how it is that um, racialized gender is often um, uh, understood through a carceral logic. Uh, And so by that, I mean that like often when we think about uh, black gender and sexuality, uh, it it comes by way of its criminalization. Uh, And certainly here, uh, you know, as the title of the op-ed suggests, this, this might be Uh, the level of scolding and not necessarily of criminalization, but it does bear a a relationship to to ongoing conversations about needing to self-police in order to avoid a kind of external form of policing by way of the state or of the school or of a whole host of institutions um, that have uh, long practice uh, regulating black gender and sexuality.
2: Yeah, I mean honestly it reminded me of and it reminded me of Bill Cosby of course who you know had gone on that, that sort of odious speaking tour where um like the the kind of policing of the kinds of blackness that were acceptable you know was something that I heard a lot of my friends um being really troubled by and sort of like reading the comments it just yeah reminded me of that history of of kind of a kind of conservative um I don't know if that word isn't precise, but like a kind of rigid notion of what appropriate behavior is. You know, you think of the way that like advertising also latched onto his version of blackness. Um, you yeah. know, what I remember from him as a kid is like, you know, like that the sweet Jello commercial or or the Cosby Show, or right. um, and I don't I don't know that I necessarily want to lump Barack Obama in with all of that exactly, but. Yeah, I really appreciated the way that her analysis kind of uh, made room for a more complex line of thinking.
3: No, absolutely, um, and you know, I think in some ways, you know, the hope of Black on Both Sides is to think about how people m- might express their gender outside of a carceral logic. In some ways, it's a it's a bit. Up of an abolitionist book and so in response to Obama and early and that kind of earlier Cosby moment you know I, I think that there's something to be very wary of in terms of imagining that self-regulation is a form of protection um you know I think uh why I'm interested in reading Sylvia Winter with Blake Brockington is to say that like rather than trying to comport ourselves on a version of the human that has been constructed uh, by way of our exclusion, can we blow it up and have all kinds of forms of human uh, made possible? And in that world where there are, all, uh, where experience and all kinds of experience give rise to what it means to be human, I think there's also something like gender and sexual freedom.
1: Well, that Would be something to look forward to. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Riley. We loved having you on the show, and we encourage our listeners to go check out Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity from the University of Minnesota Press.
3: Thank you so much. These were such thoughtful questions, and I really appreciated the conversation.
1: This week, the Fiction Nonfiction podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Um, look, we've been uh, we've been lucky to have them uh, sponsoring our show for the last few weeks. I, Sugi, do you know that I invented a tagline for them that I think they should use?
2: What?
1: It's Netflix for knowledge. That's what I think it is. It's an online learning.
2: That's good, right? Do you like that? I mean, yes, okay. I do I actually. Like no, no, I'm 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 just disturbed by my affection for yes.
1: I mean, it's like you, so go, like on there, you go on there, you go on the interface and there's like all these, you know, you all these lectures. You can look at them just like you look at movies, right? You know, um, and, no, it's true. And they've got all kinds of topics, literature, history, philosophy. The, 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 the ad copy says even cooking or fiction writing. I don't know why fiction writing has to be an even, but that, and fiction writing. Um, <laughs> you can listen to these lectures on your phone. You can watch them anytime you want on, on your computer um, using the Great Courses Plus app.
2: And, and, um, you know, just like Netflix, they have some great originals. And in the theme of today's episode, we recommend checking out The Handmaid's Tale Feminism and Religion from The Great Courses Plus course, Sci-Fi Science Fiction as Philosophy, which also has um, mentions of the Prime Directive, Star Wars and other things that are kind of my wheelhouse. So I'll admit that I'm playing
1: (laughs) it. It's totally cool. I mean, we tell them what we're going to do each week. We're like, hey, we're doing an episode on gender. And they come back with a with a course that is totally related. But I I have to talk about a course that I listened to that um, I don't know they didn't tell us we had to listen to, but I listen to this stuff all the time. So this is called The Modern Intellectual Tradition from Descartes to Derrida. And it was a lecture on like the postmodernism. Like I studied postmodernism in college. I read of grammatology. I know about Foucault and all these guys, but the way that this professor described what the project of postmodernism and deconstruction was was so clear compared to my college professor. I was like, man, I wish I'd taken this course <laughs> when I was in college.
2: I could understand this stuff better. And I think also So I'm I'm just going to plug again that um, the lecture about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which I think does connect nicely to the episode that we did this week about the individual lives of women living in an authoritarian Puritan society. Um, And the book, of course, as everyone knows, uh, examines the themes of feminism and religion and how those themes play out in our own world and talks about gender roles in a a really interesting way. Because The Great Courses Plus is this week's sponsor, we have a special offer for our listeners. It is a limited time offer. You can enjoy a full month of The Great Courses Plus, uh, Netflix for knowledge, in Whitney's words. And to start your free month, you have to sign up through our special URL, which he will tell you
1: uh, that's the great courses plus.com slash Again, that's the great plus.com slash And when you hear me talking about Derrida in the next segment, you'll know that I'm stealing stuff directly from the great courses. Plus, believe it or not, you can learn things.
2: And now we're thrilled to welcome T Fleischman to the show. T is the author of sizes, beauty and the curator of body forms, queerness and the essay. A nonfiction editor at Diagram and contributing editor at Essay Daily, they have published critical and creative work in journals such as the Los Angeles Review of Books, Fourth Genre, Gulf Coast, and others, as well as in the anthologies Bending Genre, How We Speak to One Another, Little Boxes, and Feminisms in Motion. And I'm especially excited that we're able to share with our listeners a special advanced peek at your forthcoming book, Time is the Thing a Body Moves Through, which I've absolutely loved reading. Congratulations and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So uh, your work uh, brings together different political ideas we've talked about on the show uh, in really de- interesting ways. I wonder if you could start off uh, our conversation by reading from it.
4: Um, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, I'll read just a little bit from early on in the book. I won't set it up too much, um, except to say that this takes place one summer in Brooklyn. My partner Jackson and I had just started dating, and we were often going out looking for places um, like the porn theaters in Manhattan that Samuel Delaney describes so beautifully um, in Times Square Red, Times Square Blue—different uh, hubs for um, anonymous gay hookups, public sex culture, and and that sort of thing. So I'll start now. When I first began hooking up with Sid was the summer I always wore a fake pearl necklace wrapped thrice as a bracelet. Until one day while I was fisting him, he pulled on the bracelet necklace and it burst fake pearls everywhere. Looking back, I appreciate the scattering because it helps me think of the pearls more directly, to engage with them non-metaphorically, which is good because I've been getting bored with metaphors anyway. I've decided that I don't like them because one thing is never another thing, and it's a lie to say that something is anything but itself. It's ontologically and physically impossible, in fact. Not even apple and apple can be each other. So the gay men's sexual walking tour in Manhattan has this additional challenge. I must avoid metaphors, even as they seek to experience an echo of the city's past. It is a lot of walking, and I am usually in tattered T-shirts that show my tits, and Jackson is often in track pants and pornographic shirts and embroiders that show his tits. 1-800-EAT-PUSSY-NO-SLEEP-RAVE-NATION, one of his shirts says. One day, when he's off on a date, I go for a walk by myself. I wear a torn floral dress, similar to something Janine Garofalo would have worn, maybe in reality fights. I smoke a cigarette even though I said I quit. It is very hot. I am late for where I'm going, which is to my friend Avery's house for takeout. Avery is very good at hosting, asking questions and talking, and always looks put together even when we're just relaxing. So I'm sweaty and hurrying to go relax. I walk quickly to past this group on the sidewalk five adults and a kid maybe four years old or so although i'm bad at figuring out how old children are as i walk by the kid turns to me and says hey are you a girl and i smile and i say no and then the kid says are you a boy and i smile and i say no and then the kid seems to think very carefully and says so you don't have to be a boy or a girl and i say that's right you got it you don't and i smile again but start walking even more quickly because there are five adults with this kid and a lot of adults don't want you to tell their child to be a transsexual. What matters though is that as I am walking ahead more quickly, the kid yells out after me, hey, I live in a house with a door. The kid says it with a lot of confidence and a lot of happiness, really wanting me to know this. And I turn around and say, hey, me too, and we both laugh and then I walk down the block. Isn't that so beautiful? Hey, I live in a house with a door. I'm hungry for truth and kids are just spouting facts up and down the street. I tell Avery about it, and they immediately understand what the kid is talking about, nodding a lot as we pass a blunt. The next day, Jackson's friend from Australia, who is in town performing monologues about sex work, comes to my apartment, and men in the street have just yelled at her. I change course and tell her the story about the kid and start rambling about all this, metaphors and whatever. She says to me that she actually thinks what the kid said is more beautiful if it isn't a metaphor anyway. I shared some information about the world and then the kid wanted to share some information about the world. And if I get all loopity-loo about what the kid said, I'm probably missing the whole message anyway, which is just, hey, I, I live in the house with the door. And really, she reminds me, isn't some information about being alive beautiful enough that we dry forks and touch hair and throw away a sock?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, your book takes on relationships between art and identity, abstract and concrete, rural and urban. Um, and of course the topic of this episode, gender, um, how did you think about finding the right form for these ideas? Like that, like that discussion on metaphor that you brought in, in in the middle of that story that you just read to us.
4: Yeah, a lot of it happens through process for me. So the book represents about six years of constant writing and of a writing practice. Um, it started off originally as an obsessive project where I was describing ice in a notebook. Um, So just visually, orally, describing nice kind of every day for quite a while. And then that project grew and started to take on different forms over time and as things would change in my life or I'd encounter new ideas that I was interested in. Um, What resulted are there's two primary forms in the book. So there's one kind of prose section that details mainly with Jackson, my partner, Um, and uh, a few other recurrent obsessions, sex primarily. Um, And then also an essay in verse that narrates a different relationship, um, the romantic friendship that I have uh, with a character named Simon in the book. Um, It's sometimes a sexual partnership and sometimes not a relationship that doesn't really fit easily into our definitions of friend or lover or any of these types of things. Um, So there's these two forms in the book um, and across them and throughout them I'm also thinking about similar political problems, identity, history, visual art, especially um, the work of Felix Gonzalez-Torres, visual artist. Um, so process is really the way that I get to those forms, right? I try to let myself when I'm writing to Rome, to change forms, to return to the old forms that I've put aside, all that kind of freedom, freedom that I allow myself as the writing. And, and then I reach the point where I assemble the book from those forms. Um, so the jumping around through time, the kind of mixing together of different um, forms of thought or ways of thinking or schools of thought, whatever the case may be. All that's an attempt to reorder and restructure what's happened through my life and to find um, new ways and different ways to structure the relation of the questions and the concerns of the book, that kind of thing. Finding out what extends, what disrupts, what can come back.
2: So uh, for our listeners who don't know as much about Felix Torres' work, can you tell us a little bit about that work and how you found your way to it and sort of realized that it was something like that seeing seeing that work as some was a way for you to process these ideas?
4: Yeah, definitely. and Felix Gonzalez Torres, um uh he was a gay Cuban refugee. Uh, uh he died of complications related to AIDS in the um mid nineties. Uh his work's really um um brilliant and varied and, and does so many different things, so I feel bad just just glossing it too much but the piece that he's probably most known for um, and that people tend to most often recognize from from him is a piece that is a portrait of his partner um, Ross who uh, also died of complications relating from AIDS um, and it's a pile of candies that's in the often it's presented in like the corner of a gallery and the audience is invited to take a piece of candy from the pile and to to eat it and enjoy it. So when you pass it, you're you're allowed to to take from the artwork, uh, and it also gets refilled, right? So um, it has a what. Gonzalez Torres calls an ideal weight, um, and it gets refilled back up to that weight. Um, But like I said, his his work is really varied. He works in text, he works in lots of takeaways, um, posters of flying birds that the audience can take home. Uh, He did a piece that was photos of, um, or photos when they're available, and and kind of blank slots of everyone who died of gun violence over a week in the United States. Um, uh, A really broad range of things. Um, As far as how I found my way to his writing and, and, and what appealed to me about him, I first tried to write about him a little bit um, in my first book says G-Beauty um, and wasn't uh, quite able to find a way to say what I wanted to about him, and, and, and took that thread out of the book. Um, and I thought that I just kind of moved away from it, but then through that obsessive ice writing, uh, I found this link between the, the image of the ice that I was worrying over, and um, another one of horrors is candy pieces, where there's um, candy that's wrapped in blue oil that kind of crinkles. So there was an imagistic association between the, the the wrapper on the on the candy and the ice that got me back into writing about him and over time he kept growing and taking on more and more importance in in the writing project um, and there's lots of reasons he really appeals to me um, one of them as you know a, a refugee from Cuba as a gay man um, living at the heights of the AIDS crisis for many reasons. Uh, Uh, The conditions of his life were um, not only topics of kind of cultural and political debate, but wildly misunderstood in the mass culture, right? Um, And a lot of his work finds ways to talk or think about um, his own life, the conditions around his life, um, sometimes autobiographical, sometimes not, but find ways to um, think about those concerns on his own terms um, and, and find a way to step through or move outside of those, those larger conversations that can be such a problem and, and offer something else to his reader and that really appealed to me and that really um, struck me as meaningful and, and meant a lot to me. And there were other things too. Um, uh, the uh, uh, close friend of mine died of complications from AIDS during the course of writing the book so that of course through um, Gonzalez Torres's work into a whole new light, into the pieces that I was thinking about, um, into a different kind of, um, personal resonance for me, um, that, that brought me back to it again and again and again.
2: It was so interesting to read this book after reading your first book, because I found that as I was thinking about this episode and and thinking about things that I wanted to ask you, one of the things Mm -hmm. that started to happen was that, um... I mean, you wrote those books at really different times, and of course, like mm-hmm. the the second one has the the word "time" in its in its title and is really front loading that idea. And yet, at the, I also found myself losing track of which parts were in which book, mm-hmm. and so, but that was sort of like that was kind of great in that I because I was reading them in sort of a seamless row. I was. Um, part of this the continuum of how you were thinking about the art, which was really, um, I don't know, which was interesting and also reminded me of the ways in which I used to think about, um, I mean, these days I review books, but I, a while ago I was in journalism school for arts journalism and I spent a lot of time thinking about criticism and, and what the point of criticism was and your work seems to be combining, you know, of course, um, these different forms, the essay and verse, um, sort of straight prose and, um, you know, criticism and, and like the seeing of objects in like these really fluid ways that are, that are very beautiful. And to sort of, um, I don't know, I hadn't really, I hadn't realized until you, you just said that, that actually for me in my head, um, the boundaries between the books has sort of gone <laughs> as well
4: yeah, definitely. And I, I um, you know, I think of the second book is definitely in conversation with the first book uh, um, in lots of different ways. and sometimes it's critiquing the first book and sometimes it's it's borrowing from the first book and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad that came through. And yeah, you know, I didn't have any um, one of the reasons that I'm interested in writing about visual art is because I never had a chance to so much as take like an art, art history one on one course or you know I have no no visual arts training to speak of. Um, in the making of it or in the writing of it. Um, And for such a long time, that made it it impossible to me to try to comment on art, you know, like the discourse in the art world being so intimidating and confusing and and all these things. But eventually, and, and through Syzygy, I got to the point where I, I felt like the lack of training that I had, um, allowed me this other form of engagement and that that became interesting and also like terrifying to me to, to try to write into that conversation, but, but compelling. Um, anyway,
1: one thing I, you were mentioning other, uh, modes of thought or, uh, uh schools of ideas in the book. And I wanted to ask you about this discussion where you say, you know, uh, talking about not even an apple and an apple can be each other. This idea and metaphor, mm-hmm. which to me reminds me, makes me think of Derrida and his idea of difference and and uh, mm-hmm. sort of postmodern thought about what's the sign and the, and all the all the meanings that a, that a sign brings with it that it can't be necessarily located in the world in a simple way, is that stuff that you're working with here?
4: Yeah, and I won't
1: make any claims about Derrida, but <laughs> um, I will say um, he's an interesting guy. It, I'm not, I'm not yeah. bringing him up to to insult him as many writers do. <laughs> <feel. laughs>
4: No, 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 I don't, um, I I just wouldn't be able to comment in a way where I felt felt good about that. (laughs) But um, similar with the art criticism stuff, uh, stuff in the kind of theory, criticism world, all that um, is always engaging to me and then I always feel um, deeply self-conscious about trying to pull from it directly. So definitely that's um, in the background and definitely that is is bouncing through my head. but also, in that section with the metaphor is, one of the things I'm thinking about is how um identity uh, functions, right? Um, yeah. and how identity is often I think uh, placed in this kind of metaphorical category. So when we're thinking of trans people um in particular, uh, you know uh, the, the Trans women um, will often people will often hear the idea of a trans woman and think that it's like a metaphor of a woman, right? As opposed to just accepting that trans people are who they say they are. That there's some sort of like metaphorical distance or something like this between them. Um, and one of the things that the book's really trying to to work through often is to get beyond. The ways that language might obscure, and to get beyond the ways that our ideas kind of prevent us from from seeing the reality and get to uh, the truth of a situation, right, and seeing things for what they are. Well, so there's a distrust of metaphor that comes in in relation really to that, also.
1: Uh, I see. See, that's slightly different. What I was thinking about is that you know, postmodernism, uh, including Derrida and maybe somebody like Foucault, would talk about you know, the, using words and calling things by a name man or woman is a way of exercising power. Right. And that power Mm -hmm. is exercised by the dominant, uh, by whoever is in power. Right. (laughs) And, and the only Mm -hmm. way to break that power up is to complicate identity, to fracture it, to break it up. And that, that is where, uh, Writers who are writing about complicated ways of gender are very interesting to somebody coming, you know, in that particular way. It's a way of fracturing the dominant ideology through fracturing terms, you know, and making sure that they, they they're destabilized in a way that I think is useful.
4: Yeah, definitely. And um, I think the book is always trying to be um, distrustful of anything that tries to be stable. Right. Another thing about these kind of shifting of forms that I'm playing with and in the way the book is functioning is I'm um, resistant of uh, a kind of transition narrative that moves from one stable identity to another stable identity, right? So from from man to woman, or from woman to non-binary, or whatever the case is. Um, and I'm far more interested in um, a kind of change that can continue, right? So right. Um, a continual unfolding, a continual kind of churning of yeah. personal change, identity change, change in politics, in that we don't get to... Place where we're um, stuck and, and right. can no longer see the possibility for that, and that that doesn't have to make necessarily an identity that we claim at some point illegitimate or wrong. We don't have to look back and say that past identities we can discount them and say that wasn't right for me. But we also can say that you know how we identify at one point can change and we can become something else, and we can change how we um, talk about ourselves, how we act in the world, all those types of things.
2: This was really interesting because like there are specific parts in the book where um, right like you narrate. Right, sort of fondness towards past selves, and it's so um, like one thing about the book that struck me as like really radical is that it feels to me like a very specific kind of happy book, Um, Mm -hmm. like a like a purposely politically um, radically happy book. I don't. Would you agree with that (laughs) (laughs) characterization? Yeah,
4: definitely. Uh, I think that I'm very interested in joy. I'm very interested in um, what joy and pleasure can kind of bring, and especially. Um, as political tools, as, cool, as tools for change, as tools for um, upsetting the status quo, whatever the case is.
2: And um, one of the ways in which I was so struck by this early on was that, you know, I you sort of called me really early on in the book on um, how I associated, um, like, I don't know, gender nonconformity or queerness or both with, um, urban spaces and you know I'm I'm watching or listening to you kind of move through different spaces and talk about transience as well as like a way of being which seemed also um I mean I don't know just as someone who has moved a lot it felt very familiar to me and then I sort of realized as I was reading the ways in which I had always sort of associated um I don't know gender nonconformity with with urban spaces as though that was the only place where it existed where obviously I should know that that's not the case and it seemed like one of many quiet quiet ways or or ways associated with form where the book is sort of, um, really successfully calling me at least on, on my assumption. And it seemed really, um, also specifically you position yourself as radical, which, um, which was, I don't know, just, it gave me a lot of food for thought. There was one passage where you, um, it's, it's a different one. Than the one that you read, but you wrote, it seemed urgent that I resist the mainstreaming of queerness and sustain a more radical tradition. Assimilation being a form of death, and you know, as someone who like I often write about immigrants and um, people from um, you know ethnic minority backgrounds, etc., cetera, et cetera, people of color, and to think about assimilation as a form of death. Um, um, you know, of course, like the corollary of that um, is that like sort of, I don't know, to be yourself is like, like such a specific, joyous choice. Um, and I just really loved that about the book.
4: Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I think a lot about, um, you know, I was born in 1983, right, um, in a very small town, rural um, Michigan, uh, land stolen from the Ottawa and the Ojibwe people. Um, so 1983, right? Um, it's a reality where queer sexuality, transness, and these things were, from my experience, like pretty much totally erased. Even though I was raised by my mother, who is very loving and encouraging and accepting of who I am, I am and has always been, um, in the cultural moment where I was, pretty much the only mention I, I would hear of um, of any sort of form of queerness would be through uh, uh, mentions of the AIDS crisis, right? Um, death, um, sometimes hate crimes, the, the kind of extreme homophobia of the culture that I was in and those kinds of things. And then I see, you know, I've been through the changes that we go through where eventually there's things like marriage equality and hate crime laws and media representation, things that... Some of them I reject and some of them that I see see value in. Uh- um, but going through this kind of big arc of change right there, right? Um, and similarly, even though I understood myself to be not male from a very young age, uh, for pretty much my earliest memories, I can understand myself as uh, in, in that way, it wasn't until my um, early 20s when I first started to encounter any sort of um, mention of transness or gender-variant culture, right, in a way that I understood that I actually could be real, um, that this could be who I actually was. So there's the, these arcs, right? Um, these arcs that are supposedly progress and these arcs that are supposedly, um, you know, movements towards a better world. Um, But at the same time, uh, we see within those, I think, uh, um, a real a real risk. So um, the hate crime laws, right? For example, that get passed. I don't believe in incarceration. I think incarceration is bad, and we can't have that. I don't believe that incarceration offers us a solution to these problems. Um, the visibility of the trans moment that we're in, where suddenly people uh, are pretending to see transness for the first time, although it's not that's not also that's not accurate. But right, it comes with a a lot of backlash, a lot of increases in personal violence and structural violence and legislation against us as trans people, and not necessarily um, political or material gains. Um, so these these motions, right? I don't believe in marriage. I don't believe in corporate gay pride. These are things that I really resist. Um, so the movement to the book is interested in trying to preserve and embrace these other traditions that were so important to me as I was coming into my understanding. And again, like several very different moments of queer culture, trans culture, mass culture, whatever whatever the case is. So things like the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, um, the work of trans artists and activists like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, groups like Gay Shame, all these different kind of radical moments that sought to upset the status quo that were so important to me. Um, are the things that I'm really trying to align myself with and continue and refuse to let go of even as we see these changes and these, I think, really dangerous ideas of progress that can prevent us from actually continuing the work that's already underway.
1: You know, Edmund uh, White, I think Edmund started ACT UP. He's been on the show. Have you ever Mm -hmm. met Ed?
4: Um, We've never met, but I I know his work for sure, yeah.
1: super sweet human being. Uh, So when you're talking about something, a a dangerous idea of progress, um, you know, I have written uh, about the military and I was a reporter in Iraq and I wrote a novel from the point of view of a female soldier um, in Iraq. And I also wrote an op ed uh, for The Times a couple years ago when uh, Obama originally got rid of the transgender ban. Um, But I wonder, you know, and now we're dealing with the Trump administration wants to return that, which I am opposed to. However, I wonder if you want to talk about, you know, complicated progress, you know. I think it's difficult when you t- when I would speak to women who are feminists to talk about a female character who's joining the military industrial complex by becoming a soldier. I mean, I wonder what you, if you could talk about that issue, the Trump issue, and the transgender man in the military in relationship to the complication of all. So, well, this is joining the military, and I I bet it's something that you might not approve of, or I could <laughs> be wrong. You tell me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you know, it throws me back
4: to I remember when I was I just turned eighteen. Um, and then shortly after I moved away from my hometown and the September 11th tax happened, right? And so much of the debate around that time was don't ask, don't tell. And but for myself and for so many people that I, you know, the exclusion of gay people from the military, um, uh, so there were so many people that I knew, we were so terrified of the draft that we were like, like, ban gay people from the military. We don't want, we don't want to go in the military. It was so horrible. It was like, you know, it was like a real fear to it would see. Would have had a really great meal to towards- have
1: during Vietnam, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right.
4: So there's like the, this like movement towards inclusion. But I think, you know, as, um, Trans people are so often used as political tools and rhetorical props in conversations Mm. that are not in any way about our well-being, our needs, what we're calling for, right? And I think that's what's happening here. The right and the left both are able to use trans people as props in this conversation. Um, And I think we need to really stop when we're talking about the U.S. military, we Need to remind ourselves what we're talking about. We're talking about um, a massive, a massive suck of resources that are used um, to commit mass atrocities and crimes against humanity and war crimes all over the world. And like, really, to to take stock of what the U.S. military has done in to the people and to the countries in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, um, the expansion of drone war prayer in Africa, Hillary Clinton's war crimes in Libya, all these horrible things, right? The way the U.S. military props up Israel and the Israeli crimes against the Palestinian people, the war in Yemen, what the U.S. has done to, uh, you know, North Korea, Vietnam, the ongoing legacies of that violence. There's so much horrible things that are happening through the military. And I think we get to to demand something better for trans people than inclusion within here, right? Um, it's a hard no to me, and it's entirely unacceptable for there to be um, a, a, the use of my life and the use of trans people's lives bolstering what the United States States military is doing historically and around the world right now. We need to be fighting against that, right? We need to be fighting against those exact things. And the conversation of inclusion or the idea that trans people um, being included, I think it really prevents us to center the needs of trans people, right? So we don't need to put uh, trans people in this organization that traumatizes Uh, service people and traumatizes veterans and treats them so horribly, right? We can demand um, actual employment and meaningful employment that people choose instead of an employment that we're kind of forced into, which is so often the case. The number that often gets thrown around is that there's 15,000 trans people in the military, active trans people in the military, right? Whenever we're talking about the numbers of trans people, I am highly skeptical that they're accurate. Um, But we're often pointing to that people are saying, oh, we need to be supporting these. I think if we want to support those 15,000 trans people in the military, things like a universal basic income, access to healthcare, access to housing, across the board is the way to do that, right? And it's also important for me to understand that my um, alliance is not simply with the transgender people within the United States, but my alliance is with transgender people and all living creatures all across the world, right? Um, So if we're going to be recognizing what the military does to um, gender variant and sexually diverse people in, in Syria, Somalia, um, the effects within North Korea, all these different things. Um, we can understand that the, the the false argument that the right and the left like to do of inclusion or not inclusion um, is a distraction from where we really need to be focusing our attention.
2: The rhetoric of being progressive seems to have been turned in so many ways towards goals that are not progressive. And when we were emailing about the episode, um, you mentioned FOSTA and SESTA, and I was reading about them, and FOSTA, for our listeners, is the Fight Online Sex, Traffic, Sex Trafficking Act, and SESTA is the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, and the FOSTA-SESTA package became law last spring. So this is sort of, um, you know, I think the, the military, um, the news about transgender persons in the military has been much bigger news, I think, for most people, um, mm-hmm. reading, say, mainstream media, but, you know, you, uh, you said, you were sort of pointing to this as a thing that you thought would be important to talk about, and and reading about it, I was sort of I was surprised first of all that, um, I mean this is on me I didn't already know about it, and also in reading about it, the ways in which the rhetoric of, of um, protecting people from sex trafficking has been turned to curtail speech um, has made certain websites um, prompted them to sh- shut down. Tools that sex workers had used to say, you know, vet their clientele to keep themselves safer, um, as opposed to actually reducing sex trafficking, it appears in some places to actually have increased sex trafficking. And so, you know, for our listeners, um, uh, Trump signed FOSTA SESTA into law in April, and, um, you know, things like Craigslist Personals were shut down. You know, people like Kamala Harris commented on this, and it seems to have had. Exactly the opposite effect, and also have damaged a lot of free speech. Can you can you talk about how you see this having played out about a year after it happened?
4: Yeah, definitely. And you know, I referenced earlier this this number of fifteen thousand um, trans people active in the military. Uh, the again, numbers are always kind of false, and we're talking about things like this. But um, roughly one hundred fifty thousand to two hundred thousand, it looks like um, trans people doing sex work. So if we're talking about uh, employment that trans people find themselves in. And there's a lot of reasons that um, many trans people turn to sex work, right? The, the reasons are varied and, and, and complicated, um, but we should at least recognize one of them being how damn impossible it often is for us to find any form of work, right? Um, so, uh, like you said, SESTA-FOSTA um, holds uh, websites, internet service providers, and the like, um, responsible um, if they host content that aids uh, sex work, right? So um, really brought a really broad kind of um, application of that, that forces people who had had, webs- not only having website platforms to screen clients, to be working through their to be working in a way that's more um, isolated and removed from the influence of organized crime, pimps, that kind of thing. Um, but it also, um, we see things like uh, the um, what are called bad date lists, right? So lists online of um, Johns who frequent sex workers who are violent. Um, those bad date that then sex workers can access for for, for protection and, and all that. Those bad date lists are being taken down, right? Like all these tools that allow sex workers autonomy, um, allow them um, some heightened levels of protection are being stripped away. And you know everyone knew that this was a case. And like you said, it, it forces people back onto the streets, it forces people into situations where they're more vulnerable to, to pimps and all this, and it's a huge boon for um, sex traffickers. All the experts, all the research said that this would happen. There was no um, real way, I, I, I have trouble believing that any of the um, the senators, or the people who, who passed this, which is pretty much everyone, um, actually thought that it was gonna do its intended purpose. But another thing about it is that it. Um, It amends section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is 1996 uh, cornerstone internet law, which uh, immunizes technology companies. Um, So technology companies could not be sued for the content that they're hosting on websites according to this act. And then Sestafos is the first ever amendment to it that says actually they can be held responsible. So again, what we have here is a vulnerable population, right? Sex workers and many trans people being sex workers being used as a rhetorical tool to expand the surveillance state, which should be terrifying to all of us. Um, And on the flip side of that, we have trans sex workers who are doing this very important work work to fight against the expansion of the surveillance state, to fight for increased access to healthcare, to housing, all these types of things. I think of Cai um, show in New York, who um, runs an organization, Gay and Lesbians Living in Trans Society, um, which is fighting so hard not only to challenge the carceral logic behind these types of programs, but to get access to healthcare, supporting asylum seekers coming from different countries, uh, supporting sex workers in these really broad ways. So. Again, there's the kind of like broader conversation, right? Where the people, trans people in particular, um, but all kinds of marginalized people are used as uh, tools and rhetorical pawns. And then there's the work that's happening on the ground, um, which is so different from it. So, again, if we're talking about like employment, if we're talking about the military issue, I always want to try to redirect us back to the actual needs of trans people, which are the actual needs of all people housing, health care, you know, access to money, access to resources, those types of things.
1: T. I think Mm -hmm. that Foucault would appreciate the concept (laughs) of uh, (laughs) trans sex workers fighting against the uh, surveillance state. Yeah, Um, I think so too. (laughs) And uh, we appreciate you uh, giving us these insights and writing this lovely, wonderful book that we hope our readers will check out when it is out in June. The title is Time is the Thing the Body Moves Through. And thank you for being on the show.
4: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation.
2: We do too. Take care. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. We'd like to thank our producers, Zach Kogus and Cody Trump. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. The music for The Great Courses Plus promo is by Damian Josiah Johansson and Anthony Bell. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook at FNFpod, Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, and Twitter at FNFtalk. And I want to give a special closing shout out today to writer John Elizabeth Stinsey, who encouraged us to do an episode on gender.